right, welcome to the show, adoptees, adopted parents, adoptive community, people, family, friends. Lend me your ears, because this is an audio podcast. I can't ask for your eyes, I guess. All right, welcome to The Rambler. I am your host, Mike McDonald. Listen, we have a great, great, amazing show for you today, because I have a very special guest. My guest today is the chief executive of the Donaldson Adoption Institute, April Dinwiddie. Yes, April Dinwiddie took the time out of her extremely busy schedule to come and talk to me. Well, I came and talked to her at the headquarters, the mothership of the Donaldson Adoption Institute, right before her trip to Chicago to do the Chicago Town Hall Let's Adopt Reform. Uh, they did have some technical difficulties, and we couldn't get the uh, they couldn't get the live stream up. But you know what? That's okay. That kind of stuff happens because I am aware of technical difficulties over here. All right, I, I feel like sometimes I'm the king of technical difficulties doing this podcast because sometimes, like last week's episode, had to go out. It went late uh, on Sunday, and then there were sound issues, so I had to re-upload it on on Monday. Uh, it was crazy. But again, I want to thank my guest from last week, Omeo Kim, and I hope that her workshop with Amy Ginther went really, really well. Uh, that was yesterday, Saturday, April 30th. And congratulations to them for running such a great out-of-the-box workshop for adoptees. Really just fantastic. And I'm proud of them for thinking outside the box to exercise some, uh, some stuff. And I heard a lot of people signed up, which is great. They had a full house, as far as I'm aware. Hope everything went well. What's been up with me lately? I don't know. Today I ran the Bear Mountain North Face Endurance Challenge, and it was 10K, which isn't, it doesn't sound that bad, right? That's what I said. I was like, oh, that, that can't be too bad, because uh, I, uh, well, maybe it sounds bad for some of you. I Lately I've been running half marathons. I will never do a marathon, but I, I've been running half marathons. That just It's just enough before I start to get bored. This was not boring. This was actually very challenging. And to make matters worse, yesterday, uh, April 30th, which was a gorgeous day, it was like 65 degrees out, sunny, beautiful. Today, opposite. It was 45 degrees out and raining. And somehow, Marissa Martin's boyfriend, Oliver Chang, convinced me to do this stupid race (laughs) and run up a mountain, 75 stories, uh, up and down. It was insane, and uh, it, it was a challenge. It was an endurance challenge, so it's an appropriately named event for running, but I finished it, and as and, and Oliver did too, and neither of us got hurt, even though I, <laughs> I did slip a bunch of times. I never fell once, and you know what? That is the definition of resilience. Actually, I guess the definition of resilience would be like in, in Batman Begins. You guys know I'm a movie buff. It's like Batman Begins, okay? It's like Alfred... Played brilliantly by Michael Caine. I'm going to do a terrible Michael Caine impression. Are you ready? It's going to be like, why do we fall down, Master Bruce? To get back up. And that's what resilience is. I encourage you all to be resilient in your lives. All right? But first, uh, listen to this because it's an amazing interview uh, and a great conversation with April Dinwiddie. Enjoy. April Dinwiddie. Hi. Hello. Thank you for sitting down with me. My pleasure. How are you? I know you're extremely busy as the chief executive of the Donaldson Adoption Institute. Yeah. There's you, a lot going on. I, yeah. <laughs> Tell me about it. Uh, I'll have to say, underestimated a lot of things. It's just, um, it's a fascinating journey, right? As mm-hmm. you pivot to your life experience 
and that translates into your professional life, it's, it's all encompassing, right? It's like, not only is the work really challenging and and fun, Mm -hmm. challenging and challenging, challenging and all (laughs) kinds of challenging, but it's like, when do you turn off? Like when does the, do you turn off? You know, I try, I think given the fact that I'm, you know, about two plus years in, Mm-hmm. I think there's the the um, I, I long term there's going to be more time to turn off short term as we sort of rebuild and reengineer and recalibrate this place like yeah. which is a process. Of course, no, I think it's it's not as much uh, of a it's a luxury to be able to turn off, mm-hmm. and that and that has to be balanced with some serious self care and. Um, downtime, right. you know, in terms of just getting enough sleep and all that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so some yeah. of the fundamentals just become so, so important because the other sort of fun things that you would do when you have time mm-hmm. um, are just few and far between. Right. So the work-life balance is tough then. It seems like, I, I don't know historically how it's been for the past two years, but I've been following the Donaldson Adoption Institute's activities for the past few months, doing the town halls and everything. It seems like you guys are sprinting from place to place, being very active. Well, there's something that I don't... I, people use this term in corporate all the time, and, and I, when, I, when I used to hear it, I used to think, well, that's so you know, ridiculous when people say that. But now I say it, and, and it's so true. It's like when you box above your weight, when you mm-hmm. play up, we're a tiny little organization that has a great history, a wonderful sort of um, sort of reputation when it comes to our work. Mm-hmm. But we we're showing up in a different way now, and yeah. and we're doing it by stretching every last bit of our resources, and mm-hmm. and with that comes you know some interesting realities, some interesting additional challenges, and some like really amazing um, like insights to what people are capable of, what I'm capable of, what, what, you know, you didn't think was a barrier that is and what you thought would be easier that isn't. And it's just a, it's a fascinating time. Yeah. At the same time, it's, uh, going from place to place and, and literally and figuratively kind of moving from a place of static mm-hmm. information right. to a place of dynamic conversation and movement and practical application is is exactly what we should be doing but phew, it's <laughs> massively challenging yeah of course i mean well so uh, the massive shift i guess today would be the information age the dawn of the information age people are starting to now get enough bandwidth where you can do live streams of your town halls and your forums and people actually tweeting questions or Facebook questions. I mean, that kind of stuff has never been done before. So do you, are you feeling like that? May, that's one of the major accomplishments and the shifts that you've had under your watch here? Well, that's a great question. And I would like to thank you for being so active in social media um, because it takes, it, takes the, it takes the community, it takes the people mm-hmm. engaging in what we put out there. So I want to thank you and everybody who has been doing that because without that, you know, we can put out great things. If no one's engaging with it, it's not, it doesn't matter. Right. So you're, you're right. I, I think that is something to be, um, something to be acknowledged and proud of. But in a way, sometimes for me, it's like I'm stuck in this place of, um, I know they've been accomplishments, but it's where we should have been all along. And mm-hmm. and I, I see that theme in adoption and foster mm-hmm. care where innovation is so, so lacking, not only just innovation in the most practical sense, in the most you know obvious sense, in the most purest sense in terms of you know, using technology, mm-hmm. but in, in innovation, but just, just sometimes even innovative thought. Yeah, and I sure. find the most innovative thought it comes from those 
in the community that are mm-hmm. sort of a new generation. Um, there's certainly folks that have been innovative for a long time. I know many of them. Those are in my sort of pod of people that I keep very close to. Right. But I will say that it just, there isn't a lot of innovation in child welfare overall. Mm-hmm. So I feel good about that. But at the same time, you know, when you have... You know, when you're looking at the big picture, you know, people want everything faster, more efficient, yeah. even just being able to live stream an event to have social media mm-hmm. engagement and questions and so forth, which we had, you know, just never done. And I don't think anybody really does no, in yeah. the world yeah. of adoption of foster care. Uh, you know, there's webinars and so forth and, and mm-hmm. things of that nature, but, and that's great. But, um, so I, you know, we just got to keep at it and hopefully continue to engage our audience and, and offer better, more innovative practical resources. Do you think the slowdown of innovation or the lack of innovation is more institutional? And now that we're seeing more of this kind of social media web 2.0 uprising, that a lot of the innovation is coming from the community, the adoptee and the adoption community at large? So I think it's complicated. Um, Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right to answer the second part first. I think part of what's being, uh, what's happening and the and the energy around social media and and te- you know using technology does come directly from community and oftentimes comes from the the adoptees ourselves and and, and parents too. I mean, I mm-hmm. think that's for sure. But I, I think there's a more complicated dynamic at play that and I'm that I'm figuring out every day, which mm-hmm. is is usually pretty agitating and sometimes inspiring to sort of figure out how you work within what is a known dynamic of, you know market forces, differences in race, class, and culture, Mm. inequity, institutional racism, um, you know, all (laughs) these things that we, um, the same, this, this sort of the, 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 uh, the sacredness of family, right? Like, you know, my family, my business, I mean, all Mm. these dynamics make it really easy to not be forward thinking. We don't want to talk about that stuff. And God forbid we talk about sex and how babies are made and and not having enough money and being poor Mm -hmm. and being, you know, a single unwed parent. I mean, all these things are just, we're, we're kind of ripping them apart. Right. But it's, it's, it's not comfortable for people. No, no, absolutely not. But I, so those are going to be obvious challenges and obstacles, but more, I feel like for the adoption institutions rather than the community because they're kind of the ones that are asking all these hard questions and trying to start this conversation that a lot of the older generation didn't want to have answered or were trying to block from being answered. Do you- sure. It's sure. I mean, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the recipient of a lot of the... Um, the recipients of a lot of the of the, the the ripping apart and the questioning are the, those those transacting adoptions today, mm-hmm. you know, and and those tra- transacting adoptions today in the old way, right? Um, and and there are a fair amount of institutes institutions and agencies and individuals that are that are transacting in a new way, mm-hmm. um, sometimes on their own, sometimes being forced to, right. and sometimes somewhere in between. Um, so it's true, um, but. I also think at the same time, there's like something that we tend to not, you know, know how, what to do with, which is society, mm-hmm. you know, and, and norms and, and models and, and what was that, yeah. that is, if that's what was, and that was what, um, whoever it was decided mm-hmm. that the way it would go is X, you know, people fell in line behind that right. idea. So I, you know, it's that's a that's a far greater challenge and uphill battle to mm-hmm. fight, and that's what you realize when you sit and you do this work. All the you know, like as as deeply as we're doing it now, it's like, 
well, whoa, we, we can't talk about this without talking about that. Mm-hmm. And we can't talk about, you know, any of this without talking about human rights. Sure. Um, the lifelong journey, um, the need for standards, like, and, mm-hmm. and all of that comes with, you know, money and privilege. Like all of these things come with these added layers to it. It's just not simple. Yeah. So it's, it makes the work like on, you know, if I'm on a good day, it makes it <laughs> fascinating and challenging sure. and yeah. you, you really, and on a bad day, it's so emotionally draining. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. so emotionally trying because it's like, wow, don't you see that? And, you know, yeah. I tend to think that people aren't coming from a really ugly, negative place. I think people are tend to mm-hmm. come from like a good, a good place of just misinformed, misaligned, mm-hmm. you know, and so that's a tough well, that's another challenge now with the information age is that there's a lot of information and misinformation out there. And, you know, how does one decipher the signal from the noise? And it's, it's hard. It's very difficult because a lot of the stuff out there that you think is kosher and comes from an official source and stuff like that is more of the same. Mm-hmm. So I, oh, that's a, con- that's a constant battle. And it's, yeah. and, and, you know, it's interesting what, what I feel like is happening more and more and it's a blessing and a curse, right? It's, I see you know, we'll get a media call that comes in and they have this question for you. They say, oh, we want to know about X, Y, Z. And they say, well, I can't talk about X, Y, Z without talking about, you know, mm-hmm. A, B, C, D, E. And they said, oh, I didn't think of it that way. So uh, it, what happens is we're shaping a lot of a lot of things, mm-hmm. but don't get quoted, which is absolutely fine with me. Mm-hmm. But and because it's a, it's like sort of this edu- you know, re-education, education, right. and which, but it's interesting because I don't think people are opposed, especially those in the news media. They're generally not opposed to learning. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to get it right, um, but it's it's just a there's just a long process in order to do that. And yeah. at the same time, you've got you know people putting out things that are you know just factually incorrect and inaccurate, mm-hmm. and and that's. That's just going to be... Yeah, and they might have their own agendas and everything like that. And I don't envy the news at all because most of the time they have to pick out sound bites out of mountains of information. And you know, a lot of that information is important to know, but you can't fit that into a news story. You have to point to a research paper or something like that. That's all right. And the, and the sad, really the sad reality is research and data in our space is just wacky. It's, just, mm-hmm. it's so... I mean, they're just gaps, you know. I mean, the best place that we are, like, tracking things now, truly, there's two places, really, um, in in theory. The foster care system in the United States, which is much more regimented, Mm. uh, and and inter-country adoption. Like, we're doing a better job, but... There's still so much we don't know yeah, and, and so many layers we're, we're not exploring. Mm-hmm. And, and then even analyzing the information and the data and what, what, what are we all using the same definitions? Are we right. seeing, you know, is it, is it unbiased and mm-hmm. it's, and it's, you know, like, you know, and it's packaging. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a constant challenge. And that's also why we don't get a lot of the mainstream news because the, 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 the facts and the figures are tough. And that's been a, been an ongoing, you know, challenge for the Institute as well, because sure. it takes, you know, we know how to do big data in this country. Mm-hmm. We just, no one wants to put the resources into an area like child welfare for whatever reason yeah. to actually yeah. do it. I mean, we can, we could do it, but we're just not. <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point with the definitions. I mean, even the word transracial now is being challenged, which to me is insane because our community has been using it for so long. So unnerving and so frustrating. It's crazy, right? Like, mm. this is just a crazy... And for somebody to just 
for this to happen and for it to gain so much momentum. And now there's been a paradigm shift where it was completely unexpected in the mm-hmm. past. Mm-hmm. Well, just language on, on its own has is, is been, you know, a, a huge, a bigger challenge than I thought it ever was. I mean, I always was a little thrown off by language, right, when it comes to adoption, because mm-hmm. none of it ever feels quite comfortable, really. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, especially when you're not conditioned to having these conversations in a in a really, like, casual kind of way. Like, if, you're fam- if you grew up and your family was talking about this stuff all the time, of course you're going to have a different experience with language and words. You know, that wasn't the case for me. Not that it was completely, uh, we weren't, you know, allowed to talk about it, but we just didn't mm. as much. So, you know, um, I've le- I learned language, I learned words, and I learned phrases, and I learned what that meant to my experience mm-hmm. a little bit later in life. And now when it's applied to, to practice policy research, it's like, whoa, like we really, and, and some of the language that's actually been, you know, has, have, it's in it's in legal it's legal legal language yeah of you course. know that is so loaded you know I think about I always I always kind of draw from the the like put up for adoption slate like slavery language like language mm. is um, emancipated from foster care when a young person leaves the foster care system uh, by you know on their own volition or they age out it's called emancipated from huh. foster care that's like emancipated yeah. from slavery it's yeah. like wait a second you know just even and that's and that's language that's professional language that's right. being used, you know, surrendered, you know, given mm-hmm. up for not, all this language is, so we, we have to figure, I mean, we've been thinking about these two for a while, like what can we do to contribute to, um, what, what, what shifts in language we want to do? I mean, that's, that's anthropology, that's sociology, that's like a linguist, that's all these sure. things that we would love to do had, if we had gajillions of dollars in the bank, but it's on the radar and we know that that will help. Not to mention all the policy issues that that brings up. I mean, not just domestic, but international policy and then translations and everything like that. I'm sure there's plenty of the same issues going overseas as well and like how frustrating that process must be. Well, it allows for pathology too. It allows mm-hmm. for, you know, when certain turn of phrase or certain word is becomes like the Kleenex, yeah. right, or the Xerox or whatever right. it is. And it's just ingrained in, and that, and mm-hmm. those words actually mean something other in other contexts right, yeah. that is negative. Mm-hmm. It just automatically, unconsciously, and sometimes consciously puts an overhang of negativity and confusion yeah. and sort of like a separation from the actual experience. Right. So there's, it's deep and it's, and it's one of my pet peeves that we have to figure out how to, how to, how to, how to do better. It's, just we just do yeah so you had mentioned a a little bit about not being able not growing up with that language or having those conversations with your family how did you grow up Mm -hmm. (laughs) how did i it's a great question um (laughs) i was grown in adoption no i was um you know my family was a a new england family of Mm -hmm. uh three my parents had well four my parents had um three children biologically uh two boys and a girl and they wanted another kid and and somewhere somewhere in their matrix they knew someone who had adopted and it mm. just it just it occurred to them it was a good idea there was i don't i don't think there was a real you know i'm i'm sure I mean, my parents are smart deep people so they're they're you know i'm sure they thought about it you know but i don't know that they really you know thought about it in a in a way that was anything more than we want to expand our family. Hmm. Adoption is a great way to do it. And then they went and they went and they did it. And it was, a, you right. know, so we, we've been talking about transaction and transformation. It was 
you know, all a set of transactions, like an, uh, you know, an unintended pregnancy with my biological mother, mm-hmm. you know, a family that wanted, you know, to have another child. And then, you know, with those two dynamics and an agency in between, um, some foster care time for me and boom, mm-hmm. you know, there's the adoption and the, and the send off to me was, was interesting in two ways. One in my paperwork, it says, uh, you know, the child has a, um, Mongolian spot on her a birthmark huh. on her buttocks, which mm-hmm. could indicate could indicate a transracial heritage. Right. And so they didn't they didn't own that I was brown. And they didn't own that there was a race difference necessarily. Huh. It was just kind of like, oh yeah, maybe, you know, bye. And then the other thing was the advice that they gave. So it, it set my parents up to not have to talk about race. Right. Okay. So, and when the experts kind of give you a baby yeah. and say, and they're the experts, right? And and and, and people you know, my folks, you know, they respect authority. Um, mm-hmm. Still today, they still, that's what, as crazy as it sounds, you know, they respect authority and they believe that those are the experts and they trusted in them. Yeah, of course. And well, who else are you going to trust? Well, exactly. Yeah. And, and so then the other piece was just start using the word adoption in your daily life and, you know, then you should be good. And it's kind of like, well, you know, so th- right. they're hardy New England people who know how to raise kids and they raised me the way they know how mm-hmm. without a lot of, you know, sensitivity to differences of race, class, and culture. And that we all, we all sort of learn that together. And, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the, the next generation that go forward, this is why I'm so started to be so active in all of this. You know, one of the reasons is that, you know, we, we know more now. Yeah. We got, we got to do better guys. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, 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 you know, if I think of it all, it really unemotionally, I look at situations Many like mine, and I say, okay, so who's the bad guy here? Like, who who is who's the bad actor? Who's the mm-hmm. bad player? I don't know. You know, I can't right. really pick it out necessarily. Today, I can tell you who the bad players are because we know more. Mm. Um, and and there's always going to be. It feels like someone to catch a bad actor who wants to go and execute something that isn't quite ethical or isn't quite above border yeah. or just isn't and to be a little bit lazy about it. So mm-hmm. we have to sort of regulate and uniform, make some of this stuff more uniform so that there's no room for that. Yeah. So people come with a better understanding and more education and the people who are there to meet them, hold them accountable mm-hmm. to be more educated. We're not doing that generally. Yeah. I mean, in some cases we are, but many cases we're not. Well, do you feel like there's obviously there's different standards between international and intercountry adoption, domestic adoption. You said you had mentioned that domestically it seems like there's more regulation, it's a little bit more standardized. Do you, is is that true? Um in foster care, I would say. So mm. I think the two places where there's more regulation <clears throat> is foster care adoption and intercountry adoption. There's more there's like a there's a set number of hours of training for both. There's a, you know, a, a little bit more of a rigorous, you know, home study process. Mm-hmm. But in private adoption where there's an attorney and, you know, that's not, you know, there's not an agency in the mix. You kind of can do Anything. sort of whatever you want, really. really. I mean, like a home study can be as simple or as complicated, you know, as yeah. you want to make it. And, you know, but different for foster care and intercountry adoption, there are, there's a set of, and I think there's some, there's definitely some movement around standardizing some of the things we talk about today, like the home study. I think that's our way mm-hmm. into some uniform standards because, you know, that's, we have been talking a lot about national standards, but like we know that's such a hard, going to be a hard fought battle. But sure. little things, like you know, little things that are actually big things, like well, we should have a universal home study. That's a start. Hmm. So why would there be at opposite ends of the spectrum? Right. Yeah. A different set of rules for the home study process. That just seems like an easy place to start. And I know there's some folks. Well, getting, what is the pushback you know, against that? Um, is there well, pushback against? Well, that? sure. I mean, there. It's it's probably because it just changes. 
you know, the the flow and the dynamic of how the work has to be done. And nobody mm-hmm. likes that, especially when maybe something more rigorous is more work. Well, yeah, of right? course it's going mean, to be more work. Right. So I, that, that I, 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 my, you know, anecdotally, I feel like that's probably more, it tends to be more the reason why lots of stuff doesn't really get adopted and maybe more money needed and, mm-hmm. you know, different, different resource outputs right. that, you know, when we talk about open adoption, open adoption is harder to do than a closed adoption, yeah, right? So why isn't it universally, you know, like accepted and there isn't a universal uniform way? Because mm-hmm. it, it takes so much longer and so much more effort mm-hmm. to make sure that everybody's fully prepared for this extended family relationship. Right. It's not certainly not impossible, but it's it takes an added layer of parent prep on every side. First birth parent, adoptive mm-hmm. parent, extended family members have to get in the matrix on it like... It's harder, and those are the, yeah. some. I think some of the barriers that uh, I think are, are ahead of us for more uniform standards in adoption across the board. I mean, many adoptees would push back and say, "I don't care how hard it is; open adoption should be the standard." Period. <laughs> right? I mean, there are plenty of voices out there that would say that that it's unfair to the child that they wouldn't be able to have this information. They don't, it's not available to them. Well, I mean, so there's different pieces, right? And people like, okay, so there's open adoption, which is while most studies point to being better for everybody, mm-hmm. um, most importantly, the the lifelong identity formation and, and you know, health and well-being of right. the adopted person on many levels. But, you know, that it's so, so, and that's a, and there, we know how to do that well. There are lots of, and there are some great agencies doing, doing that work out there um, that we're, we get to know better, you know, as, as we get to do our work more. Um, but then there's like this simple, you separate the two things. So who would push back on that? Well, a lot of people who just think it's, um, are, are, are thinking in an old way mm-hmm. or are thinking it's, it's, it's too hard for my agency to do this. And I would right. say that, yes, many adopted people that I know would say too bad, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. you, you know, yeah. sorry, like life isn't you know, easy. Parenting isn't easy when you, mm-hmm. when you're child centric and you're looking at the, the, what's in the best interest of the child, then you got to do whatever it is it takes. Then over here, there's like, well, there's just access to information, right? Right. Like, Really, there's still the majority of states that don't allow us to have our birth certificates, and and mm-hmm. then added layers of comp- com- you know complexity for intercountry adoption. Yeah. It's like guys, like that. That's just like that's just a, a comp- it's not completely separate, but it's kind of like that's a starting place, man. Like mm-hmm. if you can't have information and access to it. Well, how many states block adoptees from having their original birth certificate? The majority of states. There's only there's a, only a handful of states that give full access. Really. To it. Mm-hmm. Um, and with uh, a lot of this is on our website, and I can share it with you. Um, mm-hmm. But and a lot of states have some access, but restricted, or you have mm-hmm. to go jump through hoops to get. Um, you know, in New York, for instance, there's no, you know, there's no access to your original birth certificate. We've mm-hmm. been working in New York. We're working in Mass, where I was born. Um, there's um, I fall into the right year, but if you don't fall into the right year in some states, and this is just the wacky way that this stuff works, is right. you know, those is back deal door compromises that go on in order for you know laws to be passed which is our political system and we can't yeah, right. we have to operate within that sadly but um it's 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 a real it's really confusing you know and moving yeah. from state to state not only with access to information through birth you know original birth certificates and um medical history but mm-hmm. even with pre and post option services what you get in one state is different from what you get in another state mm-hmm. um how long the revocation period is for a first birth parent is different from state to state so you'll see people gravitating towards States that have a shorter revocation period, so uh, you know you can finalize right. the adoption sooner. Yeah. And, um, so there, it's it's a 
that is the, what motivates us. I think that frustration of what to do and how to do it and mm-hmm. where, I mean, is, is just not good for family. So our, our motivation is like, if you may believe that it's not, you know, it's not in the constitution to have federal oversight of certain things that should be state yeah. only, but you know, then you look at the realities of where we are and you think, well, something's got to give, right. you know? There has to be some kind of oversight, right? You can't vary this wildly. And then, and then, and then talk about wild is the internet, you know, and what happens yeah. on the internet from rehoming, which is the most horrifying thing you could ever think about happening, to uh, to some of the good things, which are being able to have connectivity, so forth. But but the advertising piece, when you like Google, you know. Um, you know, unplanned pregnancy or whatever, you know, a lot of adoption attorneys come up a lot of, you know, it's kind of like, it's, it's a game of Of numbers and, and there's a very little regulation. We're going to Chicago tomorrow for our, um, Thursday, our town hall. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that Chicago does, you know, Illinois does, um, well is, is really restrict advertising to only those that are licensed. Oh, really? So that's, so that's kind of, it's It's like, whoa, you know, but, but that should be the case across every Mm -hmm. single state. And we've, we see how heavy a lift it is to, like, get people to see. And it's, you know, with everything else going on in the world, it falls kind of low on people's priority list sometimes, which is really mm-hmm. unfortunate because it's it just shouldn't be because it's, it's a, a larger contingent than people believe in the connectivity to adopted people um, and parents and first birth parents. It, it adds up and there's more of us around than people think. Yeah, well, that's certainly true. <laughs> Uh, so you grew up in New England. I did. Rhode Island. <laughs> in Rhode Island? Really? My sister lives in Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. She lives in Cranston. Cranston. Do you know where that I mean, is? Yes, yeah, of course. I mean, Rhode Island is just so <laughs> big. But how wonderful that we actually had some play in the election. Like, it was for the first time in, like, a long time. It's like, yeah, Rhode like Island a big mattered. state I was now. Like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> we got to enjoy it while we can. It won't last for long. But so Rhode Island, you know, is obviously a small state. It's, um... And it didn't, certainly wasn't super diverse. We had a small family farm. We, you know, I, oh yeah, I, yeah, yeah. And nice. um, I was the youngest of four. Like I said, two boys and a girl. Mm-hmm. And my parents were just like sort of New England, you know, very much. I talk about when I talk about race, class, and culture. I'm like, we're the the non culture family. Like my mom's Italian. We ate Italian food. My mom's an amazing Italian cook. And my our community had, uh, you know, was Italian. You know, was had an Italian base mm-hmm. in it. My dad's Scottish, but you know, we didn't go to the Italian Day Parade and we didn't go to the Scottish Day Parade. And we sort of had our own, you know, Dinwoody kind of brand of family. And it yeah. was, you know, it was very, very much focused on family. Very much focused on time together. Very much mm-hmm. focused on. Um, enjoying each other company, which is, which is a best kind of brand of family that I would have, would want to have, but you know, it also wasn't like we, um, were super diverse, you know, Mm -hmm. um, just being where we lived and the exposure to some stuff. So no, my hair was an issue. Um, you know, just, you know, being sort of other, you know, looking different, being different was, you know, part of, you know, how my identity was formed and, and it, and it, it was just not something that people really thought through. Um, mm-hmm. It just it just wasn't. So it, I've like be, late in life, later in life, when I sort of kind of woke up a little bit to this mm. stuff in my early twenties, I I didn't get you know any pushback at all from from searching or anything like that. And when I started, to, I was like. Well, wait, there's like all these adopted people like, oh my gosh, there's more of me out there. And that's, that's just like so enlightening. And from that point on, it was like, whoa, um, I started a mentoring program for kids who were in foster care, adopted adults, mentoring to kids in foster care and went to a foster care agency. And that really, you know, 15, 16 years ago 
I was like, what are these places? You know, having come yeah. through the foster care system, I had one placement before my, my final placement at my, with my family. I was like, what is going on here? I mean, to see the inequity, to see the, yeah. the lack of resources, to see how kids and families are struggling. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, the, and not only that, but see the caseworkers and social workers struggling. It was sort of this like right. full circle yeah. of my, you know, you know, my, my being born, being, you know, in foster care, adopted and, mm-hmm. and looking at what was happening. It was just kind of like, oh, okay, so being that New England person and raised in that sort of way, it's like when your stuff isn't going so great. You don't just sit and cry about it. You go and help somebody else. So when I searched, mm-hmm. my biological mom wanted nothing to do with me, and I never mm-hmm. met her. So it was like the world just fell apart. And so I just right. I put my energy into something that hopefully would help other people. And I think that's kind of what's still happening now with the mentoring and this. And so hopefully we're contributing something. Yeah. I think. Well, that's – so something positive came out of that. Well, and I think it's interesting because then there's this whole thing about, you know, Is it our responsibility? I know so many adopted Mm -hmm. people, even first birth parents, adoptive parents who, you know, just feel this gravitational pull to go and do something in the field. I I didn't feel it until, you know, in my early 20s into my 30s. And and then it just was like, you know, it wasn't a matter if I was going to work in this space. It was when and just how. Um, I, you know, it feels like we do almost have a responsibility, but then it's like, why do we have to fix you know, these systems Other that were broken. Right. And so there, yeah. it, it does feel a little bit sometimes like, ugh, like, but most of the time I try to see it as, as challenging as it can be, um, as a way to contribute to, to something bigger. Sure. And to share with the world that, you know, family isn't what you think it might be. It's yeah. maybe different than that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's okay. And, but we just have to be authentic and real and, um, aware and awake and yeah. tuned in. And not just be so like goofy about it because that's just not helping kids and families. So I was curious about that because you were talking about the foster mentorship program that you had started. But, you know, as an international adoptee, there were many resources in New Jersey anyways uh, through Holt Camp and then Camp Friendship. And there's all these other things that international adoptees can do these days. And it also known as obviously has their own mentorship program mm-hmm. and their teen mentorship program. Um, and those are widely available. But I didn't know... You know, I, I haven't really thought about it up till this point. Is there anything similar for domestic transracial adoptees? Sure, there are. There are several things, and I remember being inspired by um, also known as mentoring's program. It was early on, and I, that's when I was sort of um, thinking about the idea of adoptment, which is the, my mentoring program, which would be adopted adults mentoring teeth in foster care, obviously. And I remember looking at that program, being like, interesting. Like, I don't see it anywhere else. I don't, and, it, and I know that there was, you know, there are big brothers, big sisters mentoring. Mm-hmm. Say was doing some stuff with foster youth, but not a direct one-to-one connection with adopted people or those who had been in foster care mentoring to those mm-hmm. to others in foster care. There were mentors for kids in foster care, but they were not always connected through that similar life experience. Yeah. So I, I thought that was interesting, and obviously I wanted to make it happen and did make it happen. But as I did that, I did see that there were other organizations. There's um, There are camps or culture camps that are similar in some ways to some of what you're talking about mm-hmm. through Holt and, and other organizations. Um, PACT is a great organization on the West Coast that does a transracial uh, adoption, um, a lot of transracial adoption programming for parents and families, and then also has mm-hmm. a camp. So there are things that um, that that are out there, but it's it's they they're they're not they're few and far between on some level right there's not probably not enough of them 
And then, you know, what we did, we did a, 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 a paper, Beyond Culture Camp, which really mm. talks about integration into, your, you know, a, a two-week camp once a year doesn't do it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is part of your now family dynamic. You become mm-hmm. a, a family of mixed race. You become a family of color um, when you adopt a child outside of your race. Right. And so, you know, when you think about it in those terms... It is about an integration and a, and a shift in your family versus mm-hmm. an isolated, oh, the token experiences camp or the parade or the this. That's yeah. that's part of it, mm-hmm. but not all of it. <laughs> so do you see an increase in those kinds of resources available to domestic transracial adoptees now? I do, and there are some really promising, <clears throat> what I would call promising programming and promising practices that's happening out there and I'm involved in some of it. There's a group called All Together Now out in Brooklyn mm-hmm. um, that's, you know, adoptee parent, ad- adoptive parent run um, and led through a board of directors and then facilitators and so forth that work with a children's group that has teen mentors, um, a tween group that has a facilitator, and then a parent group that has a facilitator and everybody mm is adopted and if not their adoptive parents. So it's unique space. It's one of those things that it is not, you know, it would be one of those things where would I want to just sit back and kick back and watch football on Sunday <laughs> afternoon? Yeah, that's one of the the things that I would do to sort right. of decompress. But yeah. I'm out in Brooklyn at this program because I love it so much and mm-hmm. it, it feels like so the little April in me gets really overjoyed because I see yeah. how beautiful it is when you're not the only one in the room. As a matter of fact, you're one of many and these yep. just the recognition, the the seeing yeah. of this this group and then you know the teen which is what I work closely with, boy, to see them have, you know, an impact on the children. And that was these like interesting little intersections. You see, there's a little romance happening. And I think to myself, (laughs) my goodness, if I had had someone then Mm -hmm. from a romantic standpoint that understood adoption, even just, even just organically understood, my life would be very different right now because that's always been a challenge. Absolutely. Because we're, you know, I I just, I'm designed in a very different way than some of my contemporaries that aren't adopted. I just am Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to romance. And, and I, so I think like having that container of, 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 of other of your peers earlier on Mm -hmm. is so transformational. I didn't get it until late in life. And that has been a blessing but it came you know, sort of later. So right. I think there, there, are pro- there are programs popping up, and, and they're good. So you said you started to get into this more when you were in your early 20s mm-hmm. then? So it was a college age? No. I mean, I thought about stuff in college, but I was working. I was in New York already. I, you know, and oh, I, yeah. I can't even tell you what, um, what it was that, that like... Spurred it wasn't, on? No. We're, we're helping to contribute to a, a book about um, search reunion. The two chapters that we decided mm-hmm. to take on were... Um, the stages of deciding to search and the stages mm. of search. And I think the deciding to search is even more interesting and complicated sometimes than the search can be. Because when yeah. I think about my decision, I don't have, I don't know what the spark was. I don't really know. Like sometimes it, you know, for other folks, it's like a life transition, a death, a birth, a marriage, a job change, mm. a college mm-hmm. transition, a life. You know, maybe it's something that's always been a drumbeat. I, I can't zero in on it now. And yeah. then one day I literally woke up and said, today's the day I'm going to do it. And then it, you know, so really? it, it takes on a life of its own really. And, um, hmm. I think it's different for everybody. So for you, it's just like a lightning strike. You just woke up one day and you were like, I need to do this. And that's how it all kept, tra- I waited 
gosh, I waited two years from when I had certain pieces of information for when I did anything with it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just, it, it, that's, and that's really so important for people around us to know, because I think sometimes non-adopted people and folks that are close to you, maybe even in your family sort of want it to be a way for you or want it to be a way for them. Mm-hmm. You know, they get excited by the, you know, it's just intriguing to people, you know, the fracturing of families and the reconnection of loved ones and the, you know, the movie of the week dramatic. So dramatic people yeah. get like really fired up about that. You sure. know, look at the reunion stories that people get all oh, yeah. over. And then it's like, so sometimes it's, other people's, you know, projecting what they want for you or themselves. And it just mm-hmm. doesn't work that way. You know, it's not about them. It's about you. And it's, yeah. it goes at your pace. You decide, mm-hmm. you know, when you need that unbiased, un, you know, you know, the person who will be there for you, not push you, not make decisions on your behalf, but just will be engage. That's exactly right. Right. And so hopefully there's more of that learning to come. And I think parents are interested in learning. I think most that I've come across, you know, of late do want to be prepared for that Mm -hmm. if they're not in open adoptions and many of them aren't. Um, But they, they're, they're scared as heck, you know, they're just, they're they're frightened. Mm -hmm. And I get that. Well, people are scared of what they don't know in the unknown, right? Because it's Pandora's box. You never know, you're going to open it up and you never know what you're going to get versus the, Adopting, I feel like once they've decided to search what for whatever reason that they have, it's like full on <laughs> going to do be, it. Sure. And a lot of times they don't think about that Pandora's box the way parents do. They just think this is how I'm going to find a part of my history, mm-hmm. but they don't realize it's a start or maybe not a start of a new relationship in their life that that's they're exactly opening up right. something that's going to be even bigger possibly. And what gets super tricky is I think. You know, that's a parent's job. Mm-hmm. A parent's job is to protect their children. So of it course. gets super tricky with adoption search and reunion because, mm-hmm. you know, there are added layers of the, you know, the identity of a parent mm-hmm. um, and the fragility of a parent's confidence in their ability to be a parent their bill and, and they're wanting to be loved mm-hmm. and, and protected too, yeah. that we tend to not always... I don't know, give credence or credit to, or, or even think about necessarily. And yes, they are the parent and that is their job, but they're just, they're just, it's not as simple as yeah. what it, you know, would be. The layers are, are there. And um, I, I think sometimes we we're harder on, I mean, and I, I think we need to be hard on adoptive parents sometimes, but I also think we have to be thoughtful of mm-hmm. their, why the fear that yeah. they have that's real that um, and the and the instinct to protect their children, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when it comes to the unknown. Well, how was? How, did you let your parents know that you were going to do a birth search? Absolutely. Yeah. Were I mean, they it's supportive? just the way. Sure. I mean, my dad. My dad's my dad. My dad's an old school New England guy who doesn't get super emotional about much. <laughs> um, God bless him. I, though I did do a Father's Day post on my Huffington Post blog, and he he. It, he got pretty moved by it. So yeah. I was like, okay. Um, and it's in there. He has a big heart for sure. But, you know, he's not a demonstrative guy like that. Mm-hmm. And so I think he was just more like, okay, you know, all right. You know, not, not, my mom was more supportive, but also more emotionally um, raw with it with me, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I, I, I do feel, you know, sort of at odds sometimes because, you know, I, I also, I love my parents and family so fiercely. I want to protect them too, yeah, you know, because right. they deserve to be protected mm-hmm. and, and I love them and that's what you do with your loved ones. You know, so it's always a delicate balance, I think, with us. With me personally, it's just kind of like I, I need to keep doing what I'm doing. I have some connections now to biological family members, which has been great. Um, 
but I, I do feel like trying to sort of protect everybody and, and yeah. including myself. And that's like, that's hard. It's a lot and it's yeah. almost impossible. So it's just resigning yourself to the fact that if you're moving in the spirit that is about love and, you know, and if you're moving in that spirit, it may not always appear to be that way. And it may, but if you're, if you're operating with that, then I think it, it, ultimately it's going to be okay. It's when mm-hmm. it gets, when it gets, um, you know, like, you're keeping secrets and, you know, secrets are right. never good. So, um, you know, that's harder to do. And we all need good support. We need, you know, we need, you know, therapeutic services, mental health mm-hmm. services. We need all of these things, you know, some of us more than others in terms of our, our, our experiences. And, and we just need to be sort of easier on ourselves. <laughs> well, some would say that that's impossible to try to love everybody and protect everybody at the same time. So if I have so much loyalty to my adoptive parents who I love, but I have a, a deep need in myself to want to go search for my birth parents. I don't want to hurt them necessarily and because and they might feel betrayed or that I don't feel like they're my real, quote unquote, real parents, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, like, how would you say to somebody like that with those feelings to address that? Well, here's what I, I mean, it's so much easier said than done, but I'm always like, never, <laughs> never too many people to love or to love me. Like that's really the, the sort of the, the starting place. Mm-hmm. And it sounds really cute and nice. And, and But when you get right down into it, it's, it's more of like what I've learned is, you know, these are extended family relationships. Yeah. And, and some that if I look at my own family, there have been fractures in my own family where my dad didn't speak to his father. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my parents had, you know, some fractures in their relationships were, were repaired, but ended up having a domino effect in other places sure, from yeah, what I understand. Course. I mean, I was, you know, it wasn't my business at that mm-hmm. point. It's, it's still sort of not my business, right? Like, you know, there's also this like, um, you know, if we look at ways that relationships work, they're not always they're not always continuous. Mm-hmm. They go like this. Yep. And if we're if if and, and and more parents, I think, and more of us need to realize, like, if it's if it's a if it's a relationship that is sacred and important to you, you're going to do whatever you you can to protect it. Mm. So I think that where that's where we become at odds, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And and that's where it's and I it's shifting, but it's it's. It's still really, really hard, and you can't protect everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can be realistic in the fact that relationships are hard. Relationships change. New ones come into your life all the time through divorce and remarriage that are blood and non-blood. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, there's, there's, there, there are all kinds of uh, spectrums of relationship that nothing is exactly like the adoption experience. But there are other relationships that we can learn from and mm-hmm. operate within the, you know, the context um, of, and then just as an adopted person, kind of take care of ourselves and, and just realize that you, you can't, you know, just sort of do it, do it all. It's just, it's hard. <laughs> it is. It's very difficult. <laughs> so you said uh, you did your birth search, uh, lightning struck, <laughs> and you decided to follow through. You found your birth mother, but she didn't want a relationship. But you found, it sounds like you found other members of your I birth did. family. I did. So how did that happen? Well, it's, you know, it's one of those stories that you have to have several drinks for. But <laughs> the, the short version of it is this. Um, it was pretty easy to find her. Once I had the little bits of information uh-huh. from the search angel, it was like, you know, like clockwork, really. And the fascinating thing about my journey to, for, through search was the people that I went to the address that I got mm-hmm. were adoptive parents of two biracial kids when I knocked on the door. Hmm. 
the dearest friend of my biological mother was a first birth parent who, when I met her, was searching for her son. Oh. So I had these very serendipitous yeah. like, connections wow. to people who were like, I got you, April. What do you need? We'll do everything to help you. Like, wow. So it was like, wow. Oh. Yeah. Okay. And, and I also that was realizing at that point in my life, like, wow, this is so much bigger and there are more connection points than I ever realized. Now my biological mother never told her best friend who also was a birth mom and my, the, her friend never told her. So they had this shared experience and never really yeah. connected over it. So I think, oh gosh, wow. what, what more can we do in this world to make sure that women and men don't feel isolated within this experience, right? right? Like, you know, in any way, shape or form. And then from there, it was just kind of like, easy to find her it was you know not easy to connect with her not easy to have a really obviously didn't have a relationship mm-hmm. at all really some letters a couple of phone calls and then you know she passed away a few years ago oh, I'm sorry yeah it was that was devastating and but but with that you know came the opening for my biological siblings to one know that I existed mm-hmm. through some other interesting layers of, of realizing that there was another child and we've been able to connect and I've connected to biological family members that you know that have been it's been transformational for me and it's mm-hmm. it's like it's like you know bits and pieces um, that just take in add different different mm-hmm. things to me which has been just sort of magical and um, it's a process, but it's okay. And then nothing on my biological father's side. There's a mm. little couple of clues to things, but they're really random. And um, I was never able to get any information about him. Hmm. There, there are some interesting clues. I mean, in Rhode Island, in Newport, like there, which is where my biological mom was, there weren't a whole lot of people of color necessarily. Right. You know. So there's, you know, there's, there's some, there's some clues, and I'm working on it, and hopefully I'll. I'll get that. So you're um, still working on this? Oh gosh, it's <laughs> I'll work on it until I find more answers. That's just mm-hmm. what I I think I I think I'm I'm old. I deserve, and it's on behalf of myself. You know, I want to yeah, know. Right. So, how do you how do you think it's been for your uh, birth family and your extended birth family? Well, gosh, you know, when it, I, I think it's harder than any of us realize right on their behalf, especially when you think, you know, your mom right. and you live your life with her uh-huh. and, uh, this, this human being shows up that was, you know, in my case, my, my siblings were older than me by, by a fair amount. Oh yeah. And so my, my, our mom was pregnant with me when they were like kid like kids that would notice a mom being pregnant. So, uh-huh. you know, they, you know, or, or not, I mean, kids are also very self-focused. So, you know, you can see where, so, you know, where that might, that might get by, you know, people, I mean, you maybe, know, yeah. well, it got by everybody because nobody knew she was pregnant. Uh, nobody that wow. I've come in contact with knew. And every time they see me, they're like, I saw her. And like, she stayed like in and around her area the whole time. That's yeah, really she was in her 30s, um, and she had a she was married, divorced, had you know, had her three children, married, divorced, had me when she was divorced, a single mom, and then married again, had another kid. They all stayed with her. Oh, um, okay. So it's you know there's a lot of there's there's mystery, and with her yeah, went a lot yeah. of the answers, which is which is you know I yeah, mean that's tough, like really tough, and and it's tough when I think about her. It's tough when I think about my siblings because herein shows up. So what I think of them like. What else didn't she tell us? Mm-hmm. You know, what else was she hiding from us? And that's just not a that's not a nice way to feel. At the same right. time, they're fiercely I've noticed fiercely protective, and and, and everybody's loving 
you know, there's a lot of love for, mm-hmm. for her as well. There should be. So there was something going on. Right. And, yeah. and it, and it's painful to me to think of her as my, my mother, my birth mother, having gone through any pain, mm-hmm. um, related to me. So there's, there's just like this innate protective nature that for my adoptive family, for my biological family, again, getting back to that, you want to make sure that everybody's okay. Yeah. Um, even if they're no longer on the planet, you know, I hope her spirit's okay, quite frankly, because I feel like she deserves that too. You know, she deserves to know that we've made mm-hmm. connections and, and, and it's, it's, it's okay. It's, it's gonna, it's working out. Yeah. Right. It's working its way out. Well, it sounds like you have a continued relationship with your extended biological family as well. Mm-hmm. How's that going? It's interesting. I mean, I'm, um, I'm fascinated by it all. I, I feel, um, like it's, it's, you know, first of all, I'm so busy that I, I feel like I, I don't have any time for anything. So I feel yeah. like that's <laughs> unfortunate. I hopefully when life slows down just a tad, mm-hmm. I can spend more time. Um, you know, some people you're automatically connected to just a feeling and a vibe and some you're not. I mean, um, it's, it's hard. I, I, my life would have been so totally different if I lived and grew up with them. And, sure. um, I, I think that's sort of, it's just hard to rectify. So mm-hmm. it's, I think we're all approaching it with the spirit of, you know, love. And, and that just means that when it, when the time is right, um, and I see them, I don't see them often. Mm. Um, but you know, when the time is right, the relationships will grow and I'm open to it. And I think they're open to it too. It's, but there's no roadmap for this stuff. There's nobody that tells you how to do it. So you just gotta go with your instincts and, and try to do what, what makes sense for you. It's hard. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also, I would do it over. And, and it, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it again. Really? Like I, 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 I would do it again. I mean, I would do. I would do it again. Take it. You wouldn't straight. do it differently. I wouldn't do it any differently. Mm. I would. I would do it exactly the way that it happened because it, there's just been a lot of richness in it and learning. Yeah. Um, I, I wish I had been able to meet my mom, but I also know that just wasn't part of it. I, you know, yeah. like, it's not much. You can do, but I would do it all again. And, and with all the questions and the craziness and some of the pain and I would mm-hmm. do it all again in a heartbeat. I mean, given the circumstances, I, it sounds like this was the best case scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, the best case scenario would have been having a connection to my mom. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, but I mean, there, you know, the gosh that I've seen so many different experiences over time where it's been really like, it just far more devastating and mm-hmm. horrifying than yeah, my course. personal experience. So it's all relative. Um, it, it, it's all contributed to who I am and the type of, you know, advocate and adoption professional I want to be mm-hmm. and try to be, um, on behalf of the community, on behalf of, you know, my family, myself, other families. So it's all part of what we, you know, sort of have to process as individuals and everybody mm-hmm. has their stuff, right? So it's, you know, in some ways I say sometimes it's, I feel like exploring my identity the way I have to for survival purposes is what everybody should be doing and like yeah. to explore their identity sure. to understand it. And I feel kind of sometimes if I, if I come outside of myself for a second, I'm kind of like, well, this is kind of badass that I can do it this way. And like it, yeah. and, and to get down into it, like, cause some people who have the luxury of knowing everything mm-hmm. really don't explore their identity in a healthy way either. And, That's and, true. and, and cause they don't have to. Right. Yeah. 
So that's kind of a, a way to like make it make it better than probably what it really is in, in reality. But I do think that when you think about all the things that we say are best about adopt, a best practice for adoption, openness, mindful mm-hmm. parent prep, healthy identity development, that's good for all families and all individuals. Yeah, of course. We just have to, we happen to have to do it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting the way you put it that like having that knowledge and that information available to you is a luxury because I don't think I've ever heard it put that way, but it is for a lot of families and for adoptees, it's not. Well, exactly. It's a luxury compared to what we have, which isn't usually the connection to it. Mm-hmm. So, and when it's easy to see how that works when people, you know, sort of flippantly say, well, ha ha ha, I wish I was adopted, blah, 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 like ha 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 ha, or they make a joke like, oh, they don't look like anybody, they probably adopted, you know, the people use flippant, you know, sort of right, language yeah. around it. And, and then, but, <clears throat> you know, and, and I'm, you know, I, I, I don't always say anything, but sometimes I do. And, uh, depending on, you know, all sorts of things, but yeah, <laughs> it, it then does sort of make, it reminds me, it's an exclamation point on, wow, like you have everything at your disposal. And, and the, mm-hmm. and the unique part of it is that I think is, you know, fascinating in terms of family, um, like connectivity. I have to talk to my family about deep stuff. Mm. Like I kind of have to kind of get messy with my identity. Yeah. You know, a lot of people who don't do that are in, you might say superficial, I don't know what I would call it, but just like not as tuned in life experiences, not as tuned in, you know, to their, who they are Mm -hmm. and what they are about and what their family's about. They've never asked their parents questions about certain things. They, you you know, so you know, when I'm, when I'm not emotionally drained by it, I'm kind of fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and what do we know and what have we experienced as adopted people, families, professionals that can really inspire other families, other people? You know, ultimately that's what we would want. You mm-hmm. know, we want something for ourselves, but then I also want, I'm inspired to, to, have, to have a contribution to something, something else yeah. outside of us. Well, so when did you start getting uh, into this in the more professional sense? Um, when I started the nonprofit about 15 years ago and started doing the adoption mentoring stuff, I never considered, like, I always thought it would be, like, a, a second job. Like, right. it'd be a profession, maybe, mm-hmm. but a second job, and I'd always be doing it. But I didn't really know how it was going to, you know, manifest itself professionally. And then I joined the board of the Institute reason being I was doing so much on the ground sort of mentoring and volunteering work that was emotionally draining. And that Mm -hmm. I felt like I can't keep doing that output if I'm not thinking bigger change can happen Mm. because it just, it felt too heavy. Yeah. Working with kids in foster care, looking at some of their experiences, looking at my own experience in terms of not being able to, for a while, get my birth certificate, not being, you know, I was like, wait, hold on a second. So, you know, shift to what's the, bigger, longer view, that's, you know, research policy advocacy stuff. And that's why uh-huh. I joined the board, never intending to be the CEO. I, I never saw myself as a CEO of an organization. I saw myself more as a, of like working as an advocate mentor kind of thing, mm. not as a, a research person. That's not what I do. I'm, you know, a marketing communications person. Um, you know, there's some research trade. involved in this. Well, so of course there is, of course there is, but research in the academic sense in yeah, terms of this right. one, which was, you know, um, you, you know, what, what I had to learn, but, um, wasn't 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 one of the biggest you know learnings that I had. There were others, but um, really like just 
it occurred to me that I could be contributing to something more from an innovation standpoint, from mm-hmm. a, you know, looking at a bigger picture, you know, doing the work closest to adoption, but like, what does that mean for the bigger place? Cause that's where the breakthroughs have, have to happen. Yeah. Um, we're, we're, if we keep talking sort of to ourselves about ourselves, you know, that's not going to work. And I know that mm-hmm. there's that we're, we're doing, we're breaking out in a lot of different ways yeah. and I see it and I love it. And that's all of that contributes to like making sure that we're not just, um, we're moving forward in a, in a much bolder way. Yeah, it's got to go wider, right? Uh huh. So, what's on the horizon for DAI? Okay, so we're doing our town halls. That's that's and we, our last one's on the twenty eighth, and then um, we're putting together a report that really sort of looks at our issues in ways that I don't think we've looked at them before. In what ways? Um, looking at the lifelong journey of adoption and what that looks like. So that's you know parent prep that goes underneath that like things we right now when we talk in terms in the world of in the professional research where we talk about pre and post adoption services terms that outside of adoption people are like what yeah like exactly. parent prep what are you talking about <laughs> like i don't need to learn how to be a parent i'm a great parent already i don't need that no they so, got the books the baby books exa- yeah what to expect when you're expecting <laughs> exactly. exactly right right all right <laughs> so you know really putting context around the larger issues, like mm-hmm. um, the, the the you know transaction versus transformation, like not transacting one time transaction is not what adoption is. It's a lifelong transformation for everybody involved. Yeah. So putting those types of overlays, human rights, you know, mm-hmm. it's a my it's a it's a human right to get your information. Yep. It's a human right that kids need to need not languish in foster care. Mm-hmm. It's a human right that a, a, a an expectant parent has unbiased options counseling. It's a human right that parents get information have information and you know a human rights overlay to some of this is yeah. like what we haven't sort of you know been been talking like we certainly haven't in the institute haven't been talking that way Mm. um intersection with other systems you know what does the medical community need to know what do schools need to know what do what do the entertainment world need to know um in order to (laughs) right in order to be in order and and then ultimately like education 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 when we did our public opinion research which was new for us we we on average, people got a C minus, including the adoption community, got mm. a C minus on a very simple adoption quiz. So, if we're all getting a C minus, right, Americans at large, and even us within the community, um, how is that acceptable for mm. families and children? So it's just it's recalibrating, reframing some of this, and then all the all the issues that we've been talking about fit up under that. But our hope is that when we put it in the context that we're putting it in, it's list, it's heard in a different way. Mm-hmm. It's acted upon in a different way. Yeah. Um, and it, it's not so niche. It's, it's, it, it, it feels like, oh, okay, we can do that. So the hope is that the town halls, Let's Adopt Reform as a movement or as an initiative, winds up being what we need to, to break, you know, keep chipping away and breaking mm-hmm. through to a much more broad um, reception of what we need, which would po- update policy, which would in- impact policy, would mm-hmm. impact practice, you know, highlighting promising practices, some what we're calling hopefully, um, you know, disruptive innovation, which is big ideas, leadership, like, fu- you know, funding leaders yep. in this space. So that's all what we're working on now and hope to be, you know, talking more about in the future. So you said uh, both the adopted community and the nation got a C minus on your adoption quiz. Did you find that there were gaps or failures or wrong answers in the same areas between those two communities, or were they largely the same? It's a great question. Um, they were largely the same, um, maybe with a tweak here or there. But I mean, these are we're talking 
simple, simple questions. Like which one? What are we talking um, about here? Um, that adopted people can uh, can access their birth certificate in every mm. state. Stuff um, like that. Mm-hmm. Like something. And they can't. No, they right. can't. Um, so uh, it was kind of like. Oh, and our assumption was, based on our engagement, you know, with lots of different folks, um, that there are some plugged and tuned in people that are bright, right? That are smart, promising practice individuals mm-hmm. with great ideas and doing great work across the country in pockets, right? Yep. Um, but there are far more people that we come across that are not educated. Yeah. And and it doesn't make them bad people. There's like the bad players. Well, it just makes them are, ill-informed. That's exactly right. And and w- in some in some cases willfully ignorant. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So how but packaging our work in a way and and having these conversations that aren't, you know, sort of slamming it and and you have to do this because and, yeah. um it it's a there's a there's a there's a nuance and an elegance in some of this that that we really have to make sure that we're in order for people to not shut off. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of the, the strategy and hope I, gosh, I hope it'll work in doing stuff like working with the city of New York to do an openness, um, you know, yeah. initiative with them and open adoption. You know, our work is coming to life in more, like it's like new and different and practical ways. It's just exactly what we want. It just takes an awful lot of, it does. Well, education is a big part of that. Mm-hmm. I'm sure as you have found out, that's right. What other answers did they get wrong? I'm curious. Um, I have the quiz down on my desk. Um, another one was um, uh, parents. What was it? Uh, uh, first birth parents decide who can adopt their mm-hmm. child. Have a have a choice in who can adopt their child. Um, they don't. No. Not necessarily. I mean, t- some, sure, yeah. in some cases they do, but not universally across the board. Mm-hmm. No. Um, right. There's especially, no, 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 in foster care adoption, mm-hmm. um, that's what we're working on with the city of New York. Okay. Um, because we want there to be more of an open relationship with a first birth parent, even if it's in child welfare where there is abuse and neglect. Mm-hmm. Um, there are ways to do this that is on behalf of the child yeah. that, you know, maybe the relationship isn't with the parent for a whole host of reasons, but there's an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, and maybe it can be with the parent. We know, I know personally, uh, several first birth parents, um, who ha- had their children, uh, for some reason or another, couldn't care for them. They went into the foster care system and they have relationship with their, the, the family that is uh, raising their children. Mm. Um, it's not impossible. Sure. It's just, it's just, uh, an effort, a huge effort. Um, so, you know, that we're, and, and the, the universal education and learning is, is, is critical and, and we have yeah. to be open to it. We have to be delivering information in new and different ways, we have to be innovative. We have to be thoughtful. We have to be, you know, kind, um, in, in some ways. And then sometimes we have to be agitated and, you know, give people what for, like there's, there's all, right. it's all a part of what's needed. So where can people find all these answers? <laughs> Gosh, I'm not certainly, I mean, with, with sometimes with us, it's all over the place. I mean, I think what's most important to work on is some um, some collective um, aggregation of resources, which is right. also something on the Institute's two and three year plan okay. in terms of 
pulling together more resources in one place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, individual agencies, the state, you know, State Department, the Child Welfare League of America, the um, you know, the Child Information Gateway. There, there are places, um, adoption learning partners. There's tons of different you know places where people can get information, but it's sort of scattered. There's lots of Facebook yeah, groups, but very hard. you know, the hope is that we could do a little bit more of that aggregation and mm-hmm. um, building community and and hopefully solidarity within our community. Like it's all like being. It's it's all being built now yeah. with some of what existed before, some reframing and recalibrating what's there, and then you know adding on to building onto that, mm-hmm. um, which is which feels like sort of a heavy lift a lot, but it also there's moments where you're like, oh my gosh, it's totally working. That's kind of cool, yeah. you know, like the town halls, feeling like yep. we're actually doing something that um, that while people go, man, we same conversation, but we're not having the same conversation. It's different, and it's yeah. and it's being delivered in a different way. Yeah. So, um, hopefully, it contributes to what would be a new a new sort of path forward. Well, I think so. Is DAI is that where the ship is? Story to steering is uh, kind of becoming a central repository or a hub for aggregated different studies. That would be our hope. I mean, that would that would be our hope. I mean, we have so much right now that we have that's one dimensional that sits on our website mm-hmm. that is that is just ripe for you know being brought to life and being more dynamic. So we will start with our own work and yeah. making it more more dynamic and more user friendly. Um, and then I think there's certainly an opportunity for us to, to bring more resources together, mm-hmm. um, to be highlighting promising practices, to be locating, you know, different leaders and organizations and different groups and different concepts and ideas that are that are contributing to an innovative approach because they're out there. It's just a matter for us to find them, to have some sort of rubric around, um, you know, identifying those and then, you know, having some way to present them to the rest of the world. So it's all, I mean, it's all part of the strategy and, Mm -hmm. and the hope is that we, you know, continue to keep getting the support that we need from, from within the community and outside of it. And we're, we're feeling much more, you know, grounded and feel like there's a vision and a strategy in place. So it's taken a couple of years, but we're, we're on our way. On the way. Well, yes, that's sir. good. So what, what are the next big events that people can participate in or find online and live stream sure. or come to yeah. in person? And um, where are they? We've got our annual benefit, May 5th, Taste of Spring, which is in New York. We invite everybody to come out for that, Okay, um, which be it's just fun. Please come as our guest. Um, if you can get here, I please come to. as our guest. Um, and uh, then after that, on May 10th, we do um, the Open Adoption Forum at um, ACS with ACS, and that's on our calendar on our website. You can get more information there. And then we're at a slew of different conferences throughout um, the spring and into the summer. Mm-hmm. NYSCCC has a conference. I'm going to New Orleans. I'm going to oh, wow. um, NACAC. Um, again, a lot of amazing groups and city systems, state systems that have these beautiful, well-organized conferences that invite us to come and we always try to get there. So where we'll be uh, canvassing the the United States continuing to over the course of the next several months. And then hopefully, um, you know, before things get even more crazier politically, we'll be um, issuing our report on yeah. what the you know the reframing what do these ideas look like and um, and having you know a, some sort of an event or a, a launch a, a, with that so to be to be determined to be continued and hopefully I'll come back and talk about that with you well yes you're always welcome to do that well 
I'd be honored. I just give you tons of um, tons of kudos and tons of credit for engaging, for bringing information to folks, for allowing people like me um, to be part of the conversation. It's a it's a it's an honor and a blessing, and I just give you lots and lots of um, encouragement to keep doing it. I appreciate that. Thank you. And you also had mentioned that you may be starting a podcast as well. Yes. Right. It started. It's I'm slowly but surely kind of rolling it out. It's called. Um, Born in June, Raised in April, and it's on iTunes. And the reason why it's called Born in June, Raised in April is because I was named originally June Elizabeth um, by my biological mother. And my adoptive parents just liked the name April Elizabeth, had no idea that I was already June Elizabeth. So, you know, this... um, this idea, and then I'm born in October. So <laughs> the born in June race in April is really huh. um, representative of my sort of dual idea, yeah. identity and experience. And and part of what the podcast you'll see in the podcast, and that I follow the same sort of theme on my Huffington Post, which you can find at, if you search Huffington Post, April Dinwiddie, um, it'll come up. Um, this idea of the calendar is so unique to the adoption experience, at least it's been to mine, mm. because the calendar isn't really the same for us as it is for everybody else. So when I think of my birthday, when I mm-hmm. think of Mother's Day, when mm-hmm. I think of Father's Day, when I think of Christmas, when I think of Thanksgiving, these family holidays, these these poignant moments um, that are indelible in our lives with the, with this calendar in mind, um, the play on words with the June and the April. But when I really think about the theme, it's really, it's like, what does the calendar represent to us there? We have the day we were born, the day we we're adopted. Some of us celebrate our adoption day. You know, some of us, our adoptions weren't finalized until, you know, years later. Some of us don't have the same birthday yeah. um, that we were originally told. And we're mm-hmm. years or younger or older. And so the calendar to me is such a powerful um, is such a powerful thing. And I've mm-hmm. um, been writing more and more about that and hope to be sharing more about that through my podcast and and just in writing, because I, I think there's a lot for the extended family adopt, of adoption to learn about specific times a year, getting ready to go back to school, right? Yep. Transitions to college. Mm. You know, these things like we underestimate in terms of our experience as adopted people. Yeah. And sometimes our parents underestimate them too, and they can trigger mm-hmm. certain things in us um, that, you know, we need to be, you know, thinking about. So would you say that parents are your target audience for this podcast or are they like a secondary target audience after? I think it's the whole community really, honestly, because I, I, I mean, I'm, as I take, undertake the podcast, I'm learning myself as an, you know, outside of my, I'm like, certainly. And I feel like, so I I don't, I I guess the family, extended family of adoption, I would say Mm -hmm. if there's, if that's a way to say it. Yeah, I would say that. Okay. And so, you, yeah, so you also write for the Huffington Post. I do, I do. That's been fun. It's yeah. been challenging. It's been um, interesting to see people's responses and to be able to um, be, you know, sharing my experience and confidently mm-hmm. feeling like people are genuinely interested. And it's a, it's a, you know, it's like being able to share is so cathartic yeah, and it's it so like just makes it all kind of, it, it comes together in very different ways when you write and when you're sharing and so in mm-hmm. sharing things like this podcast that you do. So I just encourage any of us and, and throughout the experience to write, even if you don't share it, mm-hmm. write, 
record yourself, speak, like yeah. let it out, draw. I mean, I just find so much inspiration in other people's out, out, out mm-hmm. you know, manifestation of their experience. I just encourage anybody and everybody to just find the thing that would, that moves you and, and let that be a channel for your experience. It's just so amazing and healthy. Yeah, I agree. It's good creative outlets. Uh, all right. So where can other people find your work other than iTunes and on yeah. HuffPo? Um, AprilDinwitty.com. Okay. AprilDinwitty.com. Easy peasy. And I'm June and April on Twitter and, um, you know, try to, that's my, my alter identity or my, my full identity, really. <laughs> yeah. It's my full identity. That's exactly who I am. Yeah. June and April. Well, that's like the, uh, I, I don't know if you ever saw Kill Bill. Did you watch Kill Bill? <laughs> so the, one of my favorite scenes in movie history is in the end, Bill's explaining, or maybe it's Kill Bill 2, he's explaining why Superman and Clark Kent are his favorite comic book characters. It's because Superman is his true identity. Ah, see? Clark Kent is the mask that he has to wear. Fascinating. Well, and I think that you're onto it. And these and those themes in in in, in media and entertainment, we'll have to come mm-hmm. back and talk about that, yeah. are so deep. Very deep. So useful. Um, I agree. So I, I appreciate you for pulling that out because I couldn't agree more. And I think like the we can see ourselves in those experiences for sure. Yes. Cool. Well, I've enjoyed this so much. I'm glad. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I know how busy you are and you have to probably get ready to go to Chicago tomorrow, which is insane. Yes. Have fun out there. Appreciate I will be uh, live tweeting it. Oh, you're the best. <laughs> thank you so much. We, we, can't, we can't thank you enough and for what you do, for being engaged, for you know, just putting your time and energy into um, communicating with the, with the community and, and helping to bring us together because that's exactly what you do when you do this. Um, it gives us an outlet and it, and it creates a space for us. So it, it's a blessing. And I no, thank you. It. I can't do it without your help. Okay, cool. Awesome. <laughs> so thank it's you. mutually beneficial. Awesome. All right. Thanks. Thank you. That was a great show. I want to thank April Dinwiddie for taking the time out of her very busy schedule to sit down with me and talk to bring light to some of these very important adoptee issues and things that affect the adoptee community. I'm I'm really hoping that in the future, uh, the Donaldson Adoption Institute helps you guys. If you're seeking information, please go to them and uh, visit their website for a lot of information. Really great information. Okay. And keep in touch with April. She's got a lot of social media stuff going on. Listen to her podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes. Born in June, raised in April. It's on iTunes, and, you know, you can go like that one as well. And then you can listen to both of our shows, all right? Check out Zeke Anders' podcast, Non-Members. I still enjoy that one as well. And he did just interview a Korean artist adoptee who's living out in Brooklyn. And hopefully that guy will get in touch with me soon. I did try to contact him because I would love to interview him as well. And also, if you would like to be interviewed for the show, please get in touch with me. My name is Mike McDonald. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash ADHD. You can follow me on Twitter at Twitter. What am I saying? At the Rambler ADHD. And I'm also where, where, where else? Those are the big ones. You can subscribe to me on iTunes. That's always good. Just type in the Rambler. I'm also now on the Google Play Store in the podcast section. You can also search for the Rambler and you'll see my face. All right. Those are the places I'm at. Music today comes courtesy of the bell at Needle Drop Records. And a collective effort. And you can find their music on SoundCloud. Oh, SoundCloud. That's the other place that you can find me and the latest episode that's posted. Uh, Always the latest episode is going up there. All right. What else? My legs hurt and I'm hungry. So I think I'm going to go and get some lunch. 
because that sounds amazing post-race. And now I feel like, you know, I could eat anything I want because it was a pretty tough race and I deserve it. I deserve burgers and beer and ice cream. That's what I deserve this week, I think, today specifically. Listen, you guys have a great week. I really thank you for listening. If you like the show, rate the show on any of one of those platforms, review it. And uh, again, thanks to my guests. And listen, hey, if you seriously are thinking about being interviewed, get in touch with me. All right? Because look, you may not think you have a lot to say and that you'll never fill up an hour, but you will. Trust me on that. And don't think of it as an interview. Think of it as a conversation. Maybe I should advertise it that way. If you would like to have a conversation with me, please get in touch with me. And we will do that, okay? Um, all right. I think that's all that I have to say this week. Enjoy uh, Marvel Comics, Captain America, Civil War. All right? I'm going to be doing that this week and probably in the next few weeks because I, I love that movie. Uh, I mean, I love that series of movies and I anticipate loving this movie a lot in IMAX, in glorious IMAX screen vision surrounding me all right i am now really rambling all right i'll let you guys go you guys have a great week all right peace <laughs>